Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so very important topic of the day, candy corn pro or con. Tammy? It it is my secret evil love. Oh, whoa. What? Okay. Hold I, on. In fact, I have to not buy it every year because if I buy it, I will eat it. I feel I like it's like a Midwest thing, maybe. Are you pro or con? I think it's pretty gross. It yeah. just tastes like sugar. It tastes like it, it tastes like sugar. old sugar inside candles. It's like waxy. <laughs> like you chew like up a, like a, like a kernel, chalky candle. Gross. Okay, so you know what? When I was a little kid, like most little kids, I loved maple syrup and those little maple sugar candies that melt in your mouth. And the candy corn to me was like the poor man's version of maple sugar candy. Wow. I loved candy corn as a child. And now when I am around it or, you know, I can, uh, I think it's really gross but I also find it really easy to get in touch with myself as like an eight year old and love it. Huh. And but I can kind of vacillate back and so forth. So somewhere you lost it, but then it brings you back. Yeah, like I, if I, if I occupy my my childhood self, I can still love candy corn. But I can also I have no craving in general to eat it. You know, wow, this you're is so like controlled, this is what Halloween is for us, right? It's all just a big regression tool. Yeah, mm-hmm. for right? sure, and an escape. I'm usually very strongly anti-candy corn. I did have it on top of a cupcake the other day. Ugh. Pretty solid. How yeah. do we feel Icing about icing and uh, candy? How yeah. do we feel about giving trick-or-treaters scotch? Oh, I'm all um, for it. <clears throat> come to my way house. Too good for come to my house for booze, children. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, ghouls in your neighborhood. Sure are. Do you guys have your skeletons out? We ha- we dress them up. They'll be out this afternoon. They're in their little is suits. Is this Joe's favorite holiday? It is. Well, next to Christmas. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the everyday feels like Halloween edition. I'm Shane Harris, perennially frightened. Are you perennially? Well, not perennially. I think this past Every day is a horror show. Yeah, every day is a horror show. It's feeling more and more like Halloween in America. That should have been our title. There are ghouls and demons and devils in the White House. (laughs) And zombies in Congress. (laughs) Yeah, I I like Congress seems like more zombie-like these days. Yeah. Actually, all just like a huge Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, it is. When Halloween feels like an escape... Actually, Halloween's always felt like an escape for me. I've never, I was never one of those kids who was frightened on Halloween. Although I am going this year as what is one of the most frightening characters to me. Which is? Michael Myers. Oh. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm wearing the mask so I don't have to watch, look at it. So, but it's terrifying. All right. Well, we that can is... relive your trauma next week. Okay. We'll talk Why about it. Why don't you do a cute Halloween costume? I did. Remember when I was Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear? That My children a, are a monkey and a banana. Aww. Although the older one ditched the little one, and now he wants to be a firefighter. Aww. Well, that's nice. Yeah. A firefighter and a banana. Ben and Tammy, are you <laughs> a going? A firefighter this, and a do monkey. Do you have paired costumes? <laughs> no. 
I'm supposed to be on TV tonight. Uh, oh, so I'm, You're going as a talking head. I'm going as a talking head. <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we are all the here. The scariest thing of all. <laughs> in the new Jungle Studio. Maybe I'll wear horns on Oh, sure. NBC. Why not? Why not just help the Twitter trolls? <laughs> exactly. See, I told you. <laughs> Maybe I'll wear a costume on television tonight. They, they think we all wear horns anyway, Ben. Indeed. Folks like us. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, I'm here with Ben, Tammy, and Susan in the New Jungle Studio. Happy Halloween, everybody. Woohoo! Trick or treat. And by the way, if you hear a difference in our sound quality this week, we are using all new recording equipment. And so uh, if you he- can hear a difference and it's a good difference, tweet it at us. And if you don't like the difference, shut up. We don't want to hear from you. <laughs> and the females are very loud. Yes, females, very loud. <laughs> we were discussing That's earlier. That's our legacy. That was All one of our favorite review. reviews. <laughs> It's so good. I'm going to make Tammy and me t-shirts. Oh, yeah. God. Uh, on the podcast this week, attempted bombings and a shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue once again forces to confront domestic terrorism. Top U.S. officials call for a ceasefire and peace talks in Yemen and a bizarre and apparently fake attempt to smear special counsel Robert Mueller prompts an FBI investigation. Um, so let's start with the obviously uh, the big news and obviously very terrible, sad news of the week. Uh, we talked a little bit about the package bombs on the show last week, but that was as the story was breaking. Uh, so, of course, now we know that there's been an individual uh, arrested in connection with that um, who uh, is a self-avowed, very avid Trump supporter. Uh, and then also we had the shooting at the synagogue where 11 people were killed um, by somebody who was uh, an avowed anti-Semite. Um, so we don't have to go into all the details of the attacks themselves, but this is occasioned Another opportunity and maybe more than an opportunity, maybe finally a real kind of reckoning, it seems to me, uh, about the threat of domestic terrorism and specifically right-wing extremist terrorism. And one question I even had about this, and maybe it's a way to kind of kick off the discussion, is why not call this terrorism? And do you guys feel like it's not being called that? And is that an issue? I'm I'm sort of curious as a first-order question whether people think that we're even labeling this the right way. So, first of all, I I think we have to add to this really horrific litany, the shooting at the Kroger supermarket. Yes, that's right. Which happened after we taped last week as well. And, you know, I think both that shooting and the massacre on Saturday in Pittsburgh have uh, in common, you know, a single perpetrator who is clearly animated by bigotry against a group in American society. And so... When we talk about it in legal terms, it's, you know, these, they're, I think, both now being charged as hate crimes. But there's also how do we talk about it as a society? How do we understand it? And I think to put it in the terrorism box, both as a sort of citizen with my subjective perceptions, but also as a political scientist, you know, there's a question of is this connected to anything? Is this one individual who was just full of hate and acted out, or was this somebody who thought that they were going to create a change of some kind in policy and politics and society by engaging in this act? Were they part of a movement that advocates making change in this way? That's the kind of thing that, to me, would put it into a terrorism category. And I think 
in in these cases, all three of these cases, I'm not sure we yet know enough about the individuals and their motivations and their networks and their connections. So I tend to treat the war on terrorism really as a, a sort of term of art, either as a charging decision or in terms of how we categorize investigations. Um, and I think as we mentioned last week, domestic terrorism is actually not a, an independent substantive uh, offense under federal law, at least. Um, you know, But I do think that it gets at sort of this larger question about how do we think about and how do we resource the larger question of violent extremism. Um, So under the Obama administration, there was an effort, at least a branding effort, to sort of um, shift from uh, counterterrorism efforts to CVE, countering violent extremism. And sort of there was the notion that this was inclusive, not just of Islamic terrorism, but also of right-wing violence, other sorts of forms of terrorism. I think because... um, uh, it took away a little bit of the sense that this was, you know, um, uh, racially or, or religiously motivated. Um, and whenever the Trump administration came in, actually, that was one of sort of the things that they did early on at DHS was kind of this was the Sebastian Gorka. And I, I actually think his wife might still be at DHS, Catherine Gorka. Um, one of their sort of efforts was rebranding these CVE programs as, you know, countering, you know, Islamic terrorism. I can't remember the precise name. Um, you know, one of the things that I think think is, is important to recognize is it was always a little bit of a myth under Obama. This was always a little bit of branding. There was never really uh, sufficient or equal attention played to this very, very substantial threat that law enforcement has been warning about for a long time. And, and let's not forget that one of the most significant uh, terrorism events in the United States remains the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, you know, perpetrated by Tim McVeigh. You know, one reason why we sort of necessarily have to treat these as two separate categories is because the law treats them really differently, especially in terms of how early on law enforcement is allowed to intervene. So because ISIS is a designated foreign terrorist organization, when someone likes a Facebook page, when they take relatively early steps that indicate, you know, potential support for that kind of group, it triggers the ability of federal law enforcement to, you know, stop by their house to start sort of doing those preliminary investigative steps to assess whether or not someone is a real threat. You know, whenever somebody likes a Facebook group about, you know, militias that talk about killing police officers, anti-Semitic groups, uh, it's a much more fraught and difficult question about whether or not you are potentially impeding, you know, in in First Amendment protected speech. And and this really is a is a substantive investigative hurdle that people have grappled with with for a long time. And, and we still have not figured out a clean answer for. So a couple things. I, one, you know, when people say we need to treat this as terrorism, I think there there there's a few things going on that are different from one another. One is the the sense that we take terrorism really seriously, and we don't. You know, if something's not terrorism, it means we're taking it less seriously than the things we call terrorism, the violence and. Uh, this, but that's actually not the way the law is organized, right? It's not that the law says terrorism is up here and hate crimes are down below and regular crime is down below that. Uh, the law defines as terrorism, you know, has sort of two real threshold issues associated with defining something as terrorism. One is what the modality of violence is, right? Are you using a bomb or are you using a gun? If you're using a gun, 
the law is you know, likely not to treat it as terrorism unless there's some other nexus involved. If you're if you even think about making a bomb, <laughs> you know, you're in you're in the land of terrorism statutes. Uh, the second uh, threshold is, as Susan says, is it a foreign incident or, you know, a foreign, is there a nexus with a foreign terrorist group or not? And, you know, it is not constitutional to designate domestic groups as basically, you know, per se illegitimate groups, right, that you're not allowed to get involved with. But that's what the material support statute does. It says the attorney general and the secretary of state says, hey, this foreign group is verboten. And if you give money to that group or if you give, uh, you know, material aid in any other form, including your own services, that's a crime. You couldn't do that domestically. I mean, like, even like with the Earth Liberation Front or other groups that – Correct. You you have you a know, constitution. BLF may not be in this category, but like people who've uh, you know been identified as like environmental or eco terrorists, so for instance. I, I think the the probably the cleaner analogy <clears throat> is um, is designated gangs. So okay. involvement in 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 um, groups that have been designated as gangs, which which actually has been challenged, um, you know, on on First Amendment grounds. You know, you're allowed to associate with people if you want, right. and and in order to show <laughs> that you you know, in order to criminalize the association, you have to show that you're involved. In a conspiracy, right? Right. And with a foreign group, you don't have to do that. There are foreign policy powers that the government's just allowed to say, you know. Uh, and then the final element, which I think is really important, is that there are a lot of things that go on domestically that are, uh, you know, in any colloquial sense, terrorism that. We just have other statutes that cover. So if you walk into a black church and kill nine people, any reasonable person would say that's terrorism. But the law doesn't need to call it terrorism because it, it there's this thing called murder, mm -hmm. right? And there's this well, thing. And it can also call it a hate crime. You're right. There's the, the, there's this cat special category called hate crimes, right? And so there's there there isn't really a need for calling all kinds of domestic stuff terrorism except branding, right? And the branding post 9-11 has become really, really important, but it's not legally important. Tammy. So I think that's a really interesting point. And one of the reasons why we have these specific statutes that are hate crime statutes is because as a society and in state legislatures, as well as at the federal level, we've made a decision that killing somebody because of the color of their skin or their religion or some other ascriptive characteristic is worse than just killing them randomly or killing them because you don't like them or they did something mean to you. Um, and so we created this category of crime precisely to elevate this as a social concern and to add penalties to it and to and to track it and treat it separately. Um, I think that the one way in which I still would find it useful for us as a society and for law enforcement and for government more broadly to think about acts like the Kroger supermarket shooting and the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting as terrorism is because we need to look at the ecosystem in which people get 
socialized, radicalized, and turned toward violence. This doesn't just fall out of the clear blue sky. And, and the gang analogy is actually an interesting one. There's all kinds of work done at the local, state, and federal level to look at how people get recruited into gangs, how they get initiated into gangs, what leads them down a path toward greater criminality associated with gangs. And I think it would be really useful to go through a similar exercise with hate ideologies, hate movements, hate groups. So this this brings up something that I've been wanting to ask you guys about and I've been thinking a lot about over the past week. <clears throat> when we talk about countering violent extremism or uh, um, countering radicalization, it, it seems that it's, it's a given in that field that we need to stop uh, online religious extremism of the uh, Islamist variety. We need to tamp down on social media uh, that radicalizes people, especially young men. Uh, it's taken as a given that many people who go and join terrorist networks have been radicalized in their places of worship or radicalized online. And I don't hear people really challenging that as just sort of a baseline assumption that people exposed to extremist religious um, hate-filled or uh, um, violent ideology have a propensity to become violent themselves. Why are we finding it so difficult then to say that the same thing would be true in the case of right-wing violence in this country, where you have someone who mailed bombs to Democrats who had a van covered in pro-Trump anti-Democrat stickers, uh, another person who uh, shoots up 11 pe- uh, synagogue and kills 11 people who is uh, clearly steeped on- online in anti-Semitic, right-wing, violent extremist rhetoric. So why are we having such a hard time connecting the rhetoric and the action in the right-wing domestic case when we just take it as a given in the Islamist terrorism case? Yeah, well, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think the answer is that there are certain sets of ideas that while extreme uh, radical, hateful, and tending toward violence are traditionally part of our national discourse, like racism. <laughs> and anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism. And vilifying your political opponent. Uh, right. And there are certain ideas like Islamic extremism that are outside the history and legacy of our national discourse. And so we have no problem saying, oh, when somebody goes there, that's a really scary thing. But, you know... It, so I, there is also the constitutional issue that Ben mentioned, which is a real one. But, you know, if we're talking about an individual who doesn't have a connection to a foreign organization or a foreign individual who is radicalized by an American national Islamist extremist who's preaching at an American mosque, that is also protected under freedom of association. So, but we, know, would, we would agree he was radicalized, though. We would agree he was radicalized. And so there you can see really starkly that the only difference is what, as a society, we still think is within the bounds of, of normal for this country and what's not. And when I, when I see it that starkly, it really upsets me. Yeah. So Jim Comey, in his... I guess not his last year as FBI director, but the year before that, the year that they had open ISIS investigations in all 50 states, mm. did this series of interviews and speeches in which he described the problem of ISIS recruitment as, you know, akin to having this devil sit on the shoulders of thousands of people and constantly whispering hate-filled stuff in their ear and the devil you know, for 
it was Twitter and social media just constantly talking in people's ears and that some portion, some percentage of people who have that experience, you know, who may have a propensity through, you know, prior emotional difficulties or whatever get radicalized and, you know, very violent as a result of that. That struck me as right about ISIS and right about this other ecosystem in exactly the same way. We've built a world in which, you know, if you want to be the person who stews in those juices and has that community of very violent people whispering in your ear all the time, you get to do that. And it's not different if it's ISIS than if it's, uh, you know, a domestic group. And it's no less you know, no more or less dangerous. I mean, look, I think this comes down to whether or not we have a rational or irrational security policy. And if national security is about keeping people safe, both here and abroad, the notion that we are devoting really outsized resources to a problem that is uh, statistically smaller, uh, that is not a rational policy. And, you know, I, I think Tammy is right. This, um, this very clear very identifiable threat happens to uh, occupy sort of a, a set of hot button issues, including sort of, uh, you know, historic racial uh, legacies in this country. Guns are, are uh, you know, obviously uh, a sort of a no-go uh, question for huge portions of the national security community and huge portions of the Republican Party. And so I think what ends up happening is, uh, one, we don't see this through the lens of it being a national security issue. And two, even whenever we do have have pretty clear uh, indicators of when someone uh, potentially poses a genuine threat, things like acquiring large amounts of weapons, things like having domestic violence histories, right? There, there's lots and lots of studies on this stuff. Um, we are somehow not able to incorporate that into a security policy and a law enforcement policy that is rationally related to the degree of the threat we're facing. All right. Let's move on to – I have no segue for this. Yeah, well, we solved the problem, right? Yeah. It's a, so move on to the next thing. On the next From thing. one horrible thing to an even worse there thing. There you go. Or which as is, bad. That's an which evergreen segue on this show. Yeah. Mm. Although um, it should be Halloween related. <clears throat> From one spooky, terrible, horrible thing <laughs> to, uh, to another. another. Um, yeah. Well, let's just talk about Yemen. Yeah, maybe we can end this spooky, <laughs> horrible thing. Uh, well, some officials would like to do that. Uh, so both Mike Pompeo and uh, Jim Mattis uh, this week have publicly called for uh, the war in Yemen to uh, reach a ceasefire in the next 30 days. Uh, Mattis actually said at a speech at the U.S. Institute of Peace this week that 30 days from now we want to see everybody around a peace table based on a ceasefire, based on a pullback from the border, and then based on ceasing dropping of bombs that will permit uh, the U.N. Special Envoy to do his job and, and calling for a uh, peace talk in Sweden uh, to ultimately try to end the war. Um, so, Tammy, how significant is this call? And we should remind people, obviously, that the United States provides military support to the war in Yemen, both through weapons and arms that we sell to the Saudis and also through targeting assistance. Um, <clears throat> uh, I guess we could argue about how good that is, considering civilians are dying in huge numbers. And the humanitarian crisis there is 
I think probably objectively the worst in the world right now. Um, so how significant is it that top administration national security officials are saying uh, we want to cease fire in 30 days? And how do we get there? Look, I think that on the one hand, the administration is responding to pressure that's been building for a long time uh, over the horrific cost of this war and the American role in it. Let's remember that American role began under President Obama and has continued more or less unchanged under President Trump. So um, both parties share the blame for this. But both parties on Capitol Hill have been expressing increasing concern especially as the humanitarian cost has mounted. And the New York Times ran just a chilling, chilling report uh, from uh, their reporter and photographer who went out and documented the extent of this famine, uh, the extent of civilian casualties and infrastructure destruction, um, which means that even if the war ended tomorrow, the cost of saving the Yemeni population from this uh, famine and reconstructing the country into something viable is just a huge, huge endeavor and will cost a lot of money. Um, so let's let's put that in front of us to begin with. But the other thing, of course, that's going on here is that the administration is under pressure as a result of the clear complicity of the crown prince and the government of Saudi Arabia, if not their planning uh, and intention in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and so to a certain extent, this is the administration trying to change the subject <laughs> uh, and to demonstrate that they are wielding their relationship with Saudi Arabia on behalf of something good uh, and not merely playing along to whatever blank check they've handed over to Riyadh. I, I, I have to say as well, though, that I think for any um, diplomat in the U.S. government confronted with a crisis like the Khashoggi crisis and what it means for the Saudi government and the U.S.-Saudi relationship – it's leverage, and you want to use that leverage on behalf of good policy goals. And ending the war in Yemen is a good policy goal. So I'm I can't object to this at all. I think it's it's laudable that they've taken this new initiative. The question we face is how effective is this new initiative? This is not an administration known for very effective diplomacy. And so what they've called for is a cessation of hostilities, but the sequence by which that would occur is pretty unclear, even between the Pompeo statement and the Mattis statement. There's some disagreement on sequencing how this is supposed to happen. Uh, and there isn't really any linkage between a cessation of hostilities and a resumption of negotiations to end the war. So it's a clear signal to the Saudis, to the Houthis, to everyone else in the region that the United States wants this war to end. Uh, but there's a big unanswered question, which is, or else what, mm -hmm. right? What is it that the Trump administration is willing to do to make that 30-day deadline real? Is it willing to contemplate cutting off American support for the war? Or is it just going to back away and let Congress do that? Um, or is this just, you know, the PR headline of the day and they don't actually care to see this through? I mean, one thing I do um, wonder is whether or not sort of public opinion actually plays a role here. So along with this really harrowing um, New York Times report, you know, as you mentioned, there are these images that that are, they're frankly, they're, they're 
they're painful to actually look at. They're, they're just so incredibly upsetting um, and sort of evocative of the degree of desperation there. Um, and so it does feel as though we go through these periodic moments in which there is national or international attention focused on a humanitarian crisis. And there's sort of a conversation about what the United States is going to do. I think the last clear example of that was sort of a, a lot of uh, political attention and sort of an, and popular attention uh, around the conflict in Syria. And sort of in the humanitarian plight there. Um, and it feels like what happens is that builds and builds and builds. And then whenever there's not something to do, there's not progress. I, I, I don't know if it's because it's such a, um, a difficult subject or because the intention span is so limited, but it, it seems as though we just pivot to the next thing. And so I, I do wonder if this moment in Yemen is going to be a, essentially a, a repeat of what we saw sort of with the, the sustained uh, uh, focus on Syria, um, and, and then really that it has it has fallen largely out of the headlines. You know, there there has been some interesting research on the CNN effect, as it's called, dating back to the war in the former Yugoslavia and the the coverage in the brand new era of 24-hour news channels, the coverage of the genocide in Bosnia and how that affected American public opinion. Um, there isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that the CNN effect drives policy. At the end of the day, uh, and I'm I'm skeptical that it drives it here, except insofar as members of Congress kind of want to go there anyway. And this is a little additional nudge. Do does either Saudi Arabia or the Houthis care whether the U.S. wants the war to stop? It matters very much to the Saudis and to the Emiratis, um, both in terms of political support. I mean, it would be a major blow. Because they see this as uh, their closest front to home in their region-wide battle with Iran. And so withdrawal of American support would not only um, leave them kind of uh, at, at mercy of not getting resupply of the weapons that they need to prosecute this war, but it would also um, be essentially an American message that we're not going to help you fight Iran here. We'll fight Iran elsewhere, but we cede this ground. That would be very, very dangerous, I think, from a Saudi perspective. And dangerous from a Trump administration perspective too, right? I mean, this is, I mean, this, we have cast this as well as a proxy battle <clears throat> with Iran. And so, I mean, it seems like, I mean, to your point about what's the sequence of events of how we go through a ceasefire and then peace talks, that all sounds great. But we haven't really, A, you know, put any leverage on the table, it seems to me, and B, we're not just going to walk away. That just, that seems highly unlikely. Yeah, it's clear, I think, from everything that the administration has said from uh, from its beginning that they're not interested in ending U.S. support for the Saudi and Emirati war in Yemen. But in the face of this Khashoggi crisis, they know they have to do something. And so this, I think, is a diplomatic gambit that may or may not have much juice behind it, but they can point to it and say to Congress, hey, see, we're trying. Um, and I think they're hoping that the Saudis will play along with this diplomatic gambit so they can t say to Congress, no, see, the Saudis are playing a good role. It's the Houthis who aren't willing to end the war. Um, and to be fair, in the last round of serious negotiations over conflict resolution, which was back at the end of the Obama administration, it was the Houthis who walked away from the table. 
but the fact of the matter is that as long as the Saudis are willing to pour money into this conflict, the Iranians will match them. It's cheap for the Iranians to keep this war going. Uh, and it's the Saudis ultimately who are pouring money down a hole in a war that they can't win militarily. So they're the ones who have to make the decision that they're going to do what they've done multiple times in the past, which is buy off the parties in Yemen to come to a political agreement and get and get them all as part of that agreement to cut off their ties with other external parties and to lean on the Saudi checkbook instead. Do you think, and this suits into sort of the, the Game of Thrones that has been the Saudi royal court for the past couple of years, Mohammed bin Salman, it seems to me, unless he is truly an idiot, understands that he is under a, a you know point of maximum pressure right now, both from the U.S. Congress and to some degree from the administration, although the White House seems to be kind of standing by their man. This is his war. Um is the incentive on him now to bring this to a resolution because he has got to salvage his political credibility with the United States. Uh, it's, it's in his own long-term interests. There's even some, you know, signals that there may be some kind of reshuffling going on within Saudi right now. I'm a little bit skeptical of that because he's done a pretty good job neutralizing most of his adversaries. But it does seem to me that if anybody has an incentive to come to the table right now, he may be has the biggest one uh, because he can sort of eliminate this as a problem and maybe win back some goodwill in the wake of the Khashoggi case. I would like... Am I overthinking that? No, I don't think you're <laughs> overthinking it. I, I think <clears throat> that um, those of us who are scholars of or experts on the international relations of the Middle East, one of our axioms in our work is that uh, these regimes make decisions based less on external factors than on their concerns about regime security. Uh, and from that perspective, Mohammed bin Salman cannot afford to not win this war. Uh. So however it ends, it has to end in a way that is a clear win for him. That can be a negotiated end, but it's got to be a negotiated end that looks like a win at home. He cannot afford in this moment of challenge to look weak. And he can't afford to look like a loser. And so the question is whether the United States, the Kuwaitis, the Omanis, everyone else who has some leverage on this problem is willing and able to help him find uh, an exit ramp that he can claim as a success and whether the other parties are willing to play along with that. All right. Well, let's move from... One crazy story to another. I have no transition name today, you guys. Okay, but this is a bat shit story, okay. and it's a bat. So there's That's your oh, shit. name. Tammy with this transition saves twice in a row. <laughs> I am on it. <laughs> this is the holiday of bats, so here's some bat shit for you. Okay, this truly, this. And I know we use throw around words like bat shit and crazy and wild a lot. This genuinely deserves the label. So gather around. I'm going to try and tell you a story. No, can you please, please explain this? Because I okay. genuinely don't understand what is happening right now. Okay. So I'm going to do the best that I can with the full caveat that I'm a little confused here. <laughs> so two weeks ago, a woman, quote unquote, because I don't know if she's a woman, if she's a man, I don't know if she's several people, but somebody claiming to be a woman, uh, who had once worked in a law firm back in the 70s with Robert Mueller, began contacting journalists around town, saying that she had been approached 
by uh, some political actors, and she named one of them who is uh, set, approached by somebody who is working for a well-known uh, right-wing gag, gadfly conspiracy theorist, uh, who said, we understand that you once worked with Bob Mueller. We understand that you have a lot of credit card debt. We are willing to pay for your debt and give you some money on top of that if you will sign an affidavit saying that Robert Mueller sexually assaulted you. So this person contacts reporters under the guise of somebody who wants to, I guess, expose uh, an effort by right-wing groups to try and paint Bob Mueller as uh, somebody who has his own Me Too problem. Okay, so that happens. <clears throat> Nobody can confirm who this person is. She won't get on the phone. The story just it, – it, it's unverifiable. Then – Another right-wing sort of Twitter troll Trump person uh, starts tweeting about the fact that there is a big story coming. It's going to involve Bob Mueller. Um, everyone starts, I guess, you know, who's paying, paying attention just behind the scenes kind of catches on that maybe these two things are connected. It then bursts into public view when Peter Carr, the special counsel for Robert Mueller, who, as we all know, never comments on anything, uh, Peter Carr, the spokesman. The spokesperson, sorry, for the social council, uh, gives a statement saying that they are aware, essentially, of this, we could call it a hoax, it hasn't been proven to be a hoax yet, uh, by these claims that there's somebody willing to pay money to smear Robert Mueller, and they have referred this to the FBI. So it now becomes a matter of public record because the special counsel essentially says, yeah, we've heard about this thing going around. We've referred it to the FBI. This right-wing, first right-wing gadfly, there's so many of them in the story, now says, uh, a guy named Jack, I think it's Jack Berkman? Is it Berkman? Yeah, yeah, Jack Berkman, who you may remember from the Seth Rich conspiracy theory. Uh, that Thank uh, God I don't, but go on. Right, who yeah. tried to try so to prove that Seth Rich was yeah murdered by uh, operatives for Hillary Clinton, or maybe he thought Hillary did it herself. Uh, on Thursday at the Holiday Inn in Roslyn, this Thursday, said that he is going to bring forward a witness um, uh, to uh, accuse Bob Mueller of sexually assaulting her. And we believe someone who he says is going to accuse him of raping her. Uh, worth noting that the last time that this guy said he had a witness to a crime, that being the Seth Rich case, the guy didn't show up. They conference called this person in and the phone line kept mysteriously dropping out. So that went nowhere. So basically what we have here is it looks like an orchestrated attempt to either pay people to make up stories about Robert Mueller or possibly pretend, pretend that, that they, they were paying people wow. to make up stories. So there's kind of a weird hoax within a hoax. It's truly dumb in the sense that when the word got out to reporters about this individual, there was also some separate stream of reporting um, that there had been a private intelligence uh, uh, firm hired to look into this matter. Um, when reporters started kind of reverse engineering who was behind that private intelligence firm, it turned out it was one of the people fanning this conspiracy theory. Another right-wing troll. actually behind it. Uh, and, and, and that the intelligence company seems to have involved Pictures of him yes. and phone numbers 
that were his mom's cell phone. Right. He set up fake LinkedIn accounts, basically, uh, using pictures of himself, which you can match to his actual Twitter page, where he tweets a lot about how much he loves the president and fake media. Yeah. And then there was, like, actual pictures. I think Christoph Waltz, the actor, I think he used his picture for one of the fake profiles of people who uh, allegedly worked for company. this company. And there's, like, an actual dossier that says, you know, okay. Robert <laughs> Mueller's sexual harassment investigations or something like this. I mean, it's, it's so preposterously bad. Yeah, it's like it's like the worst of a B B movie plotline, right? right? Completely unbelievable. And so, number one, given that, why would they bother? But number two, like, why this? Okay, there are lots of ways that you could try to smear Robert Mueller or impugn his credibility. He's been in the public eye for a long, long time, right? He's traveled lots of places. He's given lots of speeches. He has bank accounts. Like, there are so many things that you could allege. And so, of course, they choose a sexual harassment scandal because that's the hot thing. Mm-hmm. And immediately on this story coming out, somebody tweeted to Ronan Farrow, like, hey, Ronan, <laughs> wonder if you got approached on this too. And of course he had. Of course he had, yeah. You know, and so the whole thing is so completely, literally incredible, not credible right. from moment one. And so who was it that they, who was the audience for this thing, really? So I have sort of a a related question because I also, like, I can't figure out why. I can't even super track who exactly. I am sort of accepting the premise that this is a hoax. And I'm comfortable declaring this a hoax, even if we haven't um, met whatever formal standards that is. Um, You know, change sort of for you. We talk a lot about disinformation uh, to the extent this is an attempt to smear the special counsel to you know, take some of the heat off the Russia investigation. How do you cover something like this? Because one of the things that I, I am struck by is this is a really dumb story and it's being covered by important media. And they're not necessarily making the wrong decision because this is this weird ecosystem that's kind of linked to the president that is does appear to be influential in U.S. discourse. So presumably things like this are going to pop up periodically. And as a journalist, how do you unpack it? How do you contextualize it? And when do you decide to just ignore stuff? I think you cover it really cautiously for exactly that reason, that – I mean, in some ways, just by covering it, you are doing the work, it seems to me, of the people who set about to perpetuate this hoax. Um, I still don't understand why the hoax within a hoax. I, I don't want to spend too many brain cells trying to figure out, you know, why Jack Berkman and uh, this other guy, Jacob Wall, who's the other one who's working with, did that. But you raise a great point, which is that, you know, you have to be really careful about how you explain this to people and explain, I think, to some degree, why you're even paying attention to it. And in this case, what really triggered the, the press en masse to get onto it was that Peter Carr, Robert Mueller's spokesperson, said we've referred the matter to the FBI. So now it's a matter of public record that there is a, uh, a referral to the Bureau. There could be uh, criminal implications to this. Um, but every time you write about it, you're repeating the words, you know, 
alleged or hoax uh, allegations of sexual harassment against Robert Mueller. And what worries me as a reporter, and I think I speak for a lot of my colleagues in this too, is that as careful as we might be in our reporting of it, as judicious as we might be, as scant as we might be in the number of words we spare for this story, a month from now, people who don't pay attention closely to the news will say, wasn't there that weird Me Too thing with Robert Mueller? Yeah, exactly. Didn't somebody accuse him of sexual harassment? So and I just want to... Whatever happened to that? You know, Tammy and I, I want to keep names out of this because uh, it's actually unfair to the individual in question to mention a name. But sometime back, Tammy and I were at a party where we met a prominent figure of the late 1990s and the person's spouse. And both of us remembered a uh, spousal abuse case involving this couple. And we, on the drive home, we were kind of joking about, oh, well, you know, they seem to be getting along reasonably well, no, no, no evident beatings going on. And then Tammy looked up, because we were curious about, I think we looked it up and we remembered as a result of looking it up that the spousal abuse thing was a hoax and it was actually the subject of like it was not real it was a smear it was a smear but we and both we had both it. remembered it as real as real and yeah. we had interacted with this person many years later with this awareness that that this was a you know a spousal abuser and it was not true and and so, you know, I don't think that's going to happen in this case with, with, I, with Bob Mueller. I wouldn't Mueller, say it's not going to But in happen. some parts of the world, it may, you know. And, um, and Mueller, look, there is the, the, the mainstream responsible press had no choice but to cover it once Peter Carr issues a statement saying there's an FBI referral because that but is – But that does raise the question, did, did he make a mistake in a, in – Saying that at all. I, like, think, I think he may have been prompted by a reporter who may have been about to write something on it. I'm not entirely sure. But still, I think the question still stands, though. What if he had just said nothing? Right. He could have just said, we're not going to comment. There are all kinds of stories yeah. out there about Bob Mueller. We're not commenting right. on right. any right. of exactly. them. Right, exactly. So, I mean, strategically, did they step in it a little bit by even giving it? But, uh, it, but it also. But they did refer to the FBI, and, you know, he's right, going to tell you that. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, I think this is the dilemma. It's a dilemma for reporters for all the reasons that you said, Shane. But I think it's a dilemma for for our society writ large because that's the way our brains work. I mean, you can repeat, like, you know, false charges against Bob Mueller. And what people will remember is Bob Mueller and charges. And, and that's just the way our brains work. And so is there a way that we, that media can learn to compensate for that, that we all can learn to compensate for that in the way we deal with these stories? Or are we just stuck with the ability of trolls to plant this stuff that has zero substance and will never, ever, ever die? I think I'm not optimistic. I think we're sort of stuck more towards the latter category. And it's one thing if... That's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. On Elm Street. It is a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> look at you with the transitions today. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, even like, you know, thoughtful, well-read, intelligent people like yourselves can remember something incorrectly as a, as a rumor and allegation and not as an actual smear. But, um, I mean, the odds are kind of stacked against us here because this thing will take on a life of its own. Uh, on the internet, and millions of people will, you know, marinate in it. Let's also be clear that we are now, there is something new happening now, which is that 
the sort of public writ large is having to address really, really crazy fringe conspiracy theories and theorists because they occupy such a prominent position, because the president of the United States has played a substantial role in promoting some of these ideas, in giving these individuals a platform, because the crazy train that he drives attracts all of these hangers on, and the White House doesn't do very much to even distance themselves. And so, yes, a little bit this is a feature of something that we've seen for a long time, but it does feel as though sort of the era of having to seriously consider someone like Alex Jones as a as a disinformation threat as somebody who who you have to take seriously because there are all kinds of people that are going to take this seriously that does feel like like a new feature and one in which we are really dramatically ill-equipped to sort mm-hmm. of address it in in this particular moment all right Let's move on to something we are equipped to address. Object lessons. There's uh, a trend, the second Oh, got it. Go. Finally got came it. to me. Right. Came got my game on. You just needed to warm up. I just needed to warm up. It's true. And I had my scotch. You would have thought that I'd have been ready. Mm. Oh, well. Sorry. Um, ben has quite an object. Do you guys have objects? I do. I have one, too. Do you have one? No, but Ben's is going to land with such a big thud. I'll do my little one so okay. that Ben can then have the big finale. I'm going to skip mine. Okay. Actually, because mine involves funny North Korean propaganda, which I know you guys think isn't funny. Yeah, I don't like yeah, North it's, Korea humor. It's, so, it's, it's so not funny. Okay, I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> so, it's so good. I'll show you later. <laughs> put it on the website, man. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Susan. Right, bypassing Shane's specific sense of humor. Um, my object lesson is a book that I just got in the mail, um, Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. And this is a book that um, John Carlin, the former uh, uh, head of the National Security Division at DOJ, and Garrett Graff have authored, um, you know, sort of a, a n- the latest contribution to, um, to a really important and ongoing uh, conversation about uh, – uh, nation states in cyberspace and uh, and the tools that the United States has to combat it. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to reading it. I will report back on uh, on on a review. Yeah, and congrats on the book, guys. All right, Ben. Okay, here's the it's sound. You, baby. Here's the sound of my object lesson going thud uh, on the the jungle studio table. <laughs> <laughs> That's a slap. <laughs> there you go. So at the top of my object lesson, somebody has written in very neat uh, 1970s handwriting, filed under seal March 1st, 1974. And uh, that was probably written by the clerk of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, but I'm not sure about that. This is Leon Jaworski's, uh, the Watergate Special Prosecutor's report to Congress, uh, the so-called roadmap, which is uh, the document that Jaworski uh, sent to the House Judiciary Committee, transmitting a whole lot of grand jury material that showed that Richard Nixon had, in fact, obstructed justice. And it was among the bases for the House Judiciary Committee taking uh, action and voting to impeach Nixon, which uh, then prompted his resignation. Um, 
And this document has been, as the handwritten thing at the top right says, under seal since 1974 as grand jury information. It has lasted, the secrecy associated with this document it has lasted 20 years longer than the identity of Deep Throat or 10 years longer than the wow. identity of Deep Throat. And, um, and how did it get released, Ben? And it got released today um, by order of Judge Beryl Howell, the current chief judge of the district court, who uh, acted in response to a petition from Jack Goldsmith and Stephen Bates and me to finally release it because uh, it's one of only two or three documents, depending on how you count, that are reasonable precedents for the sort of report that Bob Mueller is writing uh, according to 100 press reports right now. And so we thought it was time for the document to become public and ask the court to unseal it. And uh, rather to my surprise, uh, the court acted extremely expeditiously. And today, the National Archive actually released it. So you can find the actual roadmap so it can go thud on your desk. Uh, it's only 55 or so pages long, and you can find it on lawfare. So did you and did you think that she would order it released or were you not hopeful? Well, I thought we would eventually get it. I did not think she would read our petition. And you know, our lawyers at uh, Protect Democracy did a remarkable job and the actual the petition itself and the affidavits and declarations in support of it are really a wonderful piece of lawyering that our lawyers did. Uh, and I did expect eventually we would prevail. I did not expect uh, that we would prevail really quickly, which, you know, it was, it's been a matter of weeks since we filed the thing. And they actually, Judge Howell actually released this document in a different case than ours. Uh, and, but it's cl pretty clear that our petition kind of prompted it in, at least in some ways. And so I, you know, it's a neat thing and it's a, it's a, it's a piece of history and it's a piece of history with a lot of contemporary relevance. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good day at lawfare. Yeah. Go and Ben. Very good. Go and, ben. And, and maybe a, a guide for us thinking about things in the future and maybe even for Robert Mueller, who now can Who's actually. Who's now settling in with a cup of hot cocoa and it. the roadmap. <laughs> <laughs> Handing out Halloween candy. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. <laughs> and plotting his own roadmap. <laughs> Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the road Man. of the podcast. <laughs> All right. You got it. That's a yeah. bad. Okay. You worked I, it in. I pass for the week. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You've heard of them. You can find our show page on the Lawfare show page where it's always a production. Now premiering <laughs> the roadmap. <laughs> <laughs> by Leon Jaworski. Yeah, that's that's the name of our new teleplay. <laughs> or you should do a dramatic reading. Oh, okay. No, no, no. no, 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 no. I'm going to do a dramatic reading of page 45. Oh, okay. I was, there wasn't a suggestion. 38. In or about early December 1972 and early January 1973, H.R. Haldeman approved transfer of money from a secret White House cash fund of $350,000 to be used for payments to and for the benefit of the Watergate defendants. 
for a random passage, that actually is pretty. Actually, uh, yeah. the whole thing is rivetingly written. It's really simple. Every it's like unadorned. Right? Every page yeah. has one or two sentences, no more, and then <laughs> makes a, you go, "Oh, a few shit." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. That's a lot of crimes, guys. <laughs> this is bad. Yep. <laughs> they should impeach that guy. <laughs> <laughs> no lipstick on this pig. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please leave us a nice rating and review. It helps others find the podcast, too, and we appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Jack Berkman and the Deep Fakes. Nice. Okay. Good. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Sure I thought you were going to go Halloween themed. Well, I was going to say the uh, candy corn zombies, but. Nah. Uh, Could also do Jack Berkman and the Jacob Walls. And the Jacob Walls. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are so many. Jacob apparently. Walls, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> Call your mom, Jacob. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't think that Sophia Yam would object to playing with a band called The Deep Fakes, but I do not think that she would want to do it with Jack Berkman. No way. Or, or Jacob Wall. Or Jacob Wall, for that matter. Sorry, guys. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Happy Halloween. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.